Well, good morning, Crossroads. If you guys can just stay standing for just a moment. Um, my name is Kyle, and if we haven't had the chance to meet yet, I have the serving here as the associate pastor. And um, I just want us to take a moment um, before uh, we you hear a message today. Um, I'd like us to pray for our lead pastor, Pastor Will. Um, he is currently in uh, the hospital fighting illness. And um, if you guys remember from a couple weeks ago, he was he was really ill, and he's still really ill. And so um, if we could just uh, take some time, he, he requested, um, he hasn't been texting a lot of people, I don't think, but he texted me and said, have the church pray. And so, um, so that's something that um, I would like us to do uh, here before we, um, before we preach, or, or before I preach, and, and um, we have that time in our service. So if you will, please uh, bow your heads and, and pray. Father God, we know that you are the great physician. We know that you are a healer. God, you, um, you heal the broken, you mend those who are ill and who are not in good health, and you restore. And so, God, we just ask that you would do that for, um, for Pastor Will. God, ask that you would heal his body, give the doctors um, wisdom, help them to know, um, God, what's wrong and how to treat it and how to restore him uh, back to health. And, God, we know that you're able to do this. We know that you're capable and so we entrust him to you, God, and collectively we, we raise our voices to you on his behalf and just ask, God, that you would heal, um, that you would do what you're known to do. It's in your character. It's who you are. And so, God, we just ask that um, we ask that on behalf of him. God, I pray for comfort for his family right now um, as they work out the logistics of, of um, well, just not being um, present with them at home and God, that they would be able to, to just figure that out uh, here. And God, we just pray for a quick healing for him. Uh, we know that, that he's, been, he's been sick for, for a couple of weeks. And so, God, we just ask that, that you would bring quick healing. Uh, God, because we know you're able. We, we know you can. And so, God, um, collectively together, we just we raise our voices for him um, to you. And we ask, God, for you to heal our brother, Will. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. So in lieu of Will being here today, um, I'm going to preach from Jonah 3. So we've been in, we've been in uh, John 15 uh, for the past uh, couple weeks, but we're going to take a break and do Jonah 3, and I hope that today's sermon will be an encouragement to you. Um, here's why I want to preach on Jonah 3. Everybody loves a good comeback story. Everybody loves a good comeback story. And that's why even um, people that, that I, I affectionately call non-sports people can be wrapped up in sports sometimes. Because sometimes the moment of a person winning against all odds is really captivating to us. It's almost like we're hardwired or something to root for someone to overcome or to get a second chance at a win. Uh, this is true in sports and often, excuse me, and often it's true in life. For example, I want you to listen to this summary of a comeback from the world of tennis. Um, I know we've probably got a few tennis fans in here. World of tennis. Um, even if you're not a tennis fan, you've probably heard the name Roger Federer. Roger Federer was already known as the GOAT way before 2016. Um, GOAT standing for greatest of all time. Um, he had 17 Grand Slam single trophies among a host of other worldly achievements. Yet, as it went on that year, it looked more and more like Father Time had finally caught up to him. He missed two Grand Slams, he failed to win an ATP title, and he fell out of the top 10 for the first time in 14 years in 2016. 
He was suffering from a little bit of back pain and a chronic knee injury, and he called time on his season in July. So the tennis season's like January to December. They have no off season. Um, but, but, but halfway through in, in, in July, he called time. Then at the Australian Open in 2017, which happens in February, he won his first Grand Slam in five years, and he defeated none other than his arch rival, Rafael Nadal, in an epic five-set match. For all you non-tennis people out there, that's like overtime. All right, that's overtime tennis, uh, five-set match. He continued that year to defy odds by winning his eighth Wimbledon trophy, three Masters 1000 titles, and finishing the year as the world number two in one of the most impressive comebacks in recent years in all of sports. And today, at 38 years old, which in the tennis world makes you a dinosaur, because you have to run back and forth against 23-year-old legs. And if you have 38-year-old legs, usually they're not as good as those 23-year-old legs. And, <laughs> yeah, I heard some amens on that. Um, and and he, he, he's 38 years old today. He has now won 20 Grand Slam titles, the most all-time, and he sits currently today at number three in the world. Not to mention, just two weeks ago, Roger Federer in the Australian Open rallied back to win a fifth-set tiebreaker. Now, I know everyone's asleep. Fifth-set tiebreaker. Think of that as like 10 overtime rounds. Like 10, like, like 10 overtime rounds in a four-hour and three-minute match. So it lasted four. Imagine playing tennis straight with minimal breaks for four hours and three minutes. And when he, when he won, he rallied back, he won. It was his 100th Australian Open victory. Not too bad. He hasn't just made a comeback. He's stayed back. <laughs> and although many thought his story was over in 2016, Roger Federer showed us that he was not and still is not finished playing tennis. And in the same way this morning, I hope you'll be able to see the parallels in Jonah's story from the Bible. And so if you have your Bibles with you, um, I don't have the words on the screen behind me uh, today, but if you have the Bibles with you or we have some paper Bibles around on the seats, um, open up to Jonah chapter 3. And, and that's where, where we're going to start. Um, before I get into the text, I want to give you the one-minute recap of the book of Jonah uh, to, to figure out where we're at coming up to Jonah 3. So the book opens, God calls Jonah, Jonah's a prophet, and God says, go to Nineveh and preach my message that I have for the people of Nineveh. Jonah disobeys. Um, my, when I read the story to my daughter in the Jesus Storybook Bible, it says that Jonah asked for a ticket to not Nineveh. <laughs> All right, so, so, so God says, go to Nineveh. God said, go to Nineveh. And Jonah says, okay, I'll go somewhere. And so he goes to a, a, a pier, a port, and, and he goes to get on a ship. And he says, one ticket to not Nineveh, please. And so he goes on a ship to a place called Tarsus, sailing in the opposite direction. Opposite direction. The most opposite you could go, geographically speaking. And when he's on the boat, he's running away from God. God sends a storm. Jonah's thrown overboard off the ship, and a fish swallows Jonah. Jonah's now in the fish. He repents in the fish and prays to God. We'll talk a little bit more about what that means. He, he repents and he prays to God, and the fish releases him. Release is a nice way of saying vomit. Releases Jonah out onto a beach, and that's where we pick up our text today. Not a bad intro, right? It says in Jonah 3, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Remember, there's already been a first time came to him the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath, 
And Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey in. And he called out, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word even reached the king of Nineveh. And he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh, By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So we pick up the story this week in Jonah 3 with Jonah standing on a beach covered in none other than fish vomit. Not a bad way to start your week, or is it? Yes, you heard that right. At the end of chapter 2, Jonah repents and prays to God, and the fish that he was being held inside of literally vomits him out onto dry land onto a beachfront. So now what? There's four things I think that we can learn from Jonah 3. And so if you're taking notes, um, you don't have to. It's not required. If you're taking notes, though, this is point number one. Point number one, and this may be the most important, your story is never over. Your story is never over. Think about it. The book of Jonah could have ended with Jonah being rescued from the fish and set free to live life happily ever after, right? But by God's grace, that's not how the story ends. God doesn't take Jonah out of the game, does he? Jonah's story and our story isn't over yet. Jonah chapter 1 and 2 happens, but there's still chapter 3 and 4. And I feel as though this is a fear, and the reason I wanted to talk about it today is there's a fear among Christians. There's a fear that sometimes our story's over. And why do I think it's a fear? Well, because I've felt this fear in my own life. Here's some examples. Maybe you've thought some of these too. What if I don't network with the right person and I miss out on that perfect job opportunity? What if the one person I think God has for me to marry ends up dating somebody else? What if my past sins keep me from serving the Lord? What if God says enough with me? What if I don't obey God in this one decision? Does that lead me, is it a choose your own adventure where where, where that leads me down a road to being outside of his will forever? And church, I just want to say this to you today. Your capacity to be used by God can never be forfeited by your own disobedience. Your capacity to be used by God can never be forfeited or thrown away by your own disobedience. I feel like far too often we think that God is just going to keep us on the sidelines because of past sin or scars that we're carrying around from our past or wounds that we might have. And that's just not true. Look at Jonah. Remember, he went to not Nineveh. Or so he thought he was going to get there. He never made it. God desires to use you and me just like he used Jonah, even in chapter 3. And church, you need to hear this today because God desires to use beautiful, messed up, sin-scarred people to point other people to him. That's how he works. And I mean, that makes sense, right? After all, when we don't look like we have it all together, doesn't that make it obvious that God's the one doing the work in our lives? So, like, when it looks like we have it all together, some people might actually give us credit. (laughs) 
But when it doesn't look like we have it all together, when people see the scars, doesn't it make it obvious God's the one that's doing a miraculous work in our lives? When we're broken vessels, we don't get the glory. God does. When we're broken, we don't get it. It's obvious we're not worthy of it. God gets the glory, and that's the whole point. We're called to witness to a God who loves us and doesn't leave us on the sidelines even after we screw up. And Jonah, probably, when he's on the beach covered in the fish vomit, like many of us, thought that he had wrecked God's plan for his life. He thought, man, I had my chance, didn't go well, and now here I am. But here's how we know that he didn't wreck God's plan for his life. If you look at the beginning of Jonah 3, the first words God spoke to Jonah after he was out of the fish were nearly identical to the first words of chapter 1 of Jonah. And Jonah is such a small book. On your Bible, it might be on one spread. Like on mine, it's, it's like, there's the book of Jonah. All right, so you can see this pretty easily. It's almost the same exact words that he says at the beginning. He says, arise, go to Nineveh, and give them a message from me. And that's functionally what God tells him. He says, arise, go to Nineveh, give them my message. The Lord didn't chastise Jonah. He didn't spend time in small talk with him. Instead, he simply repeated his original command right back to Jonah. Because here's why. God's will for Jonah had not changed, despite Jonah's disobedience. And I believe that's the same for you and I. Now, to be clear, God doesn't need us to accomplish his plans in the world. It's not like if Jonah didn't do it, somebody else was going, uh, no one else was ever going to. Um, God doesn't need us in that way to accomplish his plans in the world. But instead, this is even better, church, he wants to do his work through us. Like he wants us to be involved. He wants us to participate. I mean, perhaps it may have been easier for God to speak to the Nevites directly, right? I mean, he's God. He can speak at any time in any place that he, that he chooses. But instead, he wants Jonah and us to instead be the vessels through which his message of reconciliation is given to the whole world. So in short, Jonah's story doesn't end on a beach once he's freed from the fish. That's not it. Instead, when Jonah repents, when he turns back to God, God's right there with the same command for him again, go to Nineveh. Your story's never over, church. So what does Jonah do with this command this time? (laughs) Any guesses? He goes to Nineveh. So let's keep reading the story. We're going to pick up in verse 3. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breath. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey. And he called out, yet 40 days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Point number two. God uses your obedience to bless others. God uses your obedience to bless others. So let's pick it up. What's going on? Jonah now, he heads off to Nineveh. It's described as an exceedingly great city in my translation of the Bible. It says exceedingly great city. This can be taken to mean two things. First, it can mean Nineveh was a huge city relative to cities back then. Um, The fact that it says it would have taken three days of walking to either walk across Nineveh or around its walls, we're not really sure what they were describing. Like, does that mean walking around or walking through? Still, it takes three days to walk through it. Um, Also, historians tell us the population at this time of Nineveh was about 120,000 people. To put that in comparison, some estimates of Jerusalem's size at that time were 6,000 to 8,000. 
So Nineveh, 120,000 people. Jerusalem, major city, six to 8,000 people. This would be like comparing New York City and its metro area to the metro area of Virginia Beach, Virginia, or Jacksonville, Florida. There's just no comparison, right? I mean, New York is a big city. It's an exceedingly great city. And back in the day, Nineveh was a mega city. Second, many scholars tell us that this phrase, written in Hebrew, would indicate that Nineveh was, in fact, an important city to God. That's how that would have been translated. It's very important to God. And this seems to fit with the context of the book. Even though Jonah doesn't care about Nineveh, God does. And after getting one day into the city, Jonah preaches a sermon in Hebrew. Um, In the original Hebrew, it was only five words. Now, don't get excited. When Pastor Will gets back, his sermon will be more than five words. I can assure you that. Uh, It will be more than five. Uh, But Jonah goes and he preaches a whopping five-word sermon in the original original language. Five words. And the scriptures say in verse 4, here was the sermon. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Mic drop. I added the mic drop. It's not in the original text. 40 days and none of us shall be overthrown. There's, I want you to note a few things. There's no clear description of what this destruction will be like or even a call to repent and trust in the Lord, is there? And we'll later learn in chapter 4 that Jonah may have intentionally preached a short sermon with the hopes that, that there would be no repentance and that God would destroy the city. Um, if you read through the book of Jonah, which, again, you saw how large it was, you, you can sit down and, and read it in one sitting. You see in, in, chapter, in chapter 4, um, you, you actually learn Jonah might have had something in his heart, right, um, that you learned in chapter 1 when he didn't want to go to Nineveh, but then it comes out in chapter 4 that he actually didn't really want God to do, to, to do anything, um, like, like to, to help the people of Nineveh. He wanted God to destroy the city. So he preaches this awesome five-word sermon, and... Um, we think that that was probably intentional, right? However, no matter what Jonah thought, he was wrong. Even after being, and this is amazing, and maybe you see this in your own life, even after being saved by God from imminent disaster himself, remember, he's thrown over the side of a ship in a storm (laughs) and then a fish. Even after being saved by God from imminent doom and disaster himself, he failed to realize that God was intent on using him to be a messenger of hope to others. Maybe you've been there. Maybe God's done an awesome work in your life, but you still can't see that he wants to use you. And you see, God uses us, like Jonah, to speak the truth and to speak love to those who are outside of Christ. And he does that with the hope that they will repent, that they will trust in Jesus, that they will turn away. Repent just means turn. They will turn away and trust from their sin and turn towards God and trust in Jesus for salvation and eternal life. And God uses us to give that message. And as we're going to see in a few moments, God uses Jonah's obedience to be a blessing to the Ninevites. We're going to see how that plays out. The Ninevites will turn from evil, and they will look towards God for mercy, all because they heard Jonah's message of warning. Basically, Jonah was wrong. Jonah, Jonah thought of God in way too small a box. So I want to ask you, where is God calling you to be obedient that other people might be blessed? Who is God leading you to reach out to in his name? And who are you maybe withholding grace from that God wants to show grace to? You see, God uses your obedience and my obedience to bless others. And the third thing 
that we can learn from Jonah chapter 3 is that the power of God's word changes us who believe. The power of God's word changes us who believe. How do we know that? Verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Here's the thing to get. They didn't simply believe Jonah. The Bible doesn't say they believed Jonah's five-word message. No, it says, it says they believed God. And they specifically believed that Jonah was communicating to them the word of God. They believed, and here's the cool thing, their actions and their words both proved their belief. So Jonah preaches this five-word sermon, and God uses that message to change the Ninevites' entire outlook on themselves and their lives. I mean, I, I, I mean, all you have to do is just keep reading. It says, The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. This is the king of Nineveh. Voluntarily gets up from his throne, removes his ro- robe. That would have been royal robe covered himself with sackcloth, um, which is not a glamorous material. Um, If you have any fashion people in here, I don't think we're using sackcloth um, at the New York Fashion Week. Um, And he sits in ashes, and he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. So basically, he he issues a statement to the whole city, 120,000 people, mega city. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed, don't eat. Let them not drink water, even the livestock. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. And here's the context. This will blow your mind. The Ninevites were extremely violent people. By all historical counts, they were extremely violent people. They tortured and killed. They were known for extremely barbaric forms of torture. And they killed people, anyone who opposed them oppose their rule, oppose their thought. And yet, in an instant, God's word confronts them from their sin, and they repent. God's word had the power to do what no man, nor army, nor nation could do. And the Ninevites even went so far as to trust in God's mercy for their sin. They, they asked this, they asked, they, verse 9, it's this out loud question. They go, who knows? Who knows? Like, like remember what just happened before that. The word reached the king. He gets off his throne. He takes off his royal robe. He puts on the sackcloth. He sits in ashes. And then all the people, and he tells everyone else to do the same. All the people say, who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we might not perish. I mean, that is an attitude of submission. That is an attitude of humility. That is a posture of repentance. And they believed, even if just a little, that God might have mercy on them if they would just repent and trust in him. So what made the Ninevites do all this repenting and fasting and praying? Well, the word of God came to them. It came to them, it confronted them, and it changed them. And the same goes for us, church. God's word, if we will receive it, has the power to change you and me today in the same way. Specifically, the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ has the power to change every aspect of our lives from the inside out. Think about this. When you hear that in the eyes of the only one that matters, God, 
He's the only one that matters. When you hear that in his eyes, you are at the same time more wretched and evil than you'd ever admit to yourself or to anybody else. But at the same time, you're also more loved and valued than you ever hoped you could be. Doesn't that make you want to turn to God and trust him? When you see in his eyes that he sees through all the facade, all, all, all the stuff that you put up to try to keep other people out, God sees through all that, and he sees how wretched you are, how evil you are, but then also you see in those eyes that he loves you way more than you ever thought anybody could ever love you. Doesn't that make you want to trust him? Isn't that the only motivation that will really give you power over the sin that keeps hanging around in your life? Isn't that, the only true, isn't that truth the only thing that can really set you free to live your life in a way that pleases God? Church, we are like Jonah in many, many ways. And you've probably heard many ser- sermons on Jonah that have talked about how we're like him. But we're also Nineveh. We've all done things in God's eyes that are evil. And we're all deserving of the same punishment that God was going to lay on Nineveh. But the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that if we will believe the word of God, which promises us forgiveness and grace to all who believe, then we will be saved and spared just like the Ninevites were. Which leads me into my last point from Jonah 3. God wants your redemption, not your destruction. God wants your redemption, not your destruction. In verse 10, it says, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented, relented, he he let up. God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Contrary to what many people think, and maybe you've thought this before, God is not standing in heaven with a lightning bolt in his right hand, ready to lay the smack down on us the first time we tell a lie to cover our tracks, or we fudge the numbers at work, or we gossip about someone behind their back, or we take something that's not ours, or even when we run away from him like Jonah did, God's not standing there ready to go. In fact, Exodus 34, verses 6 through 7, it says, it says when God passed before Moses, um, this is what he says, this is what God says about God. This is what he says about himself. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, in faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and children's children to the third and fourth generation. He's merciful. He's gracious. He's slow to anger. And when God saw the Ninevites, when he saw how they repented and how they turned towards him, what's he do? He responds with great grace. Great grace. Let me say that again. God responds with great grace to people who he created, who in turn killed and tortured other people he created. That's what the Ninevites did. He created the Ninevites. He created them. They, they were evil. They fell into sin. They kill and they torture other people that he loves and he created. And he still responds with great grace to them. Do you still think God wants to wipe you out? No. Let's be clear. God is a just God. Yes, he's just, meaning that he will reject those who ultimately reject him. We know that's true. The Bible tells us. But he gives us grace, and he gives us time to repent because he he wants your redemption. He wants your redemption, not your destruction. So how can we be sure of this? 
in case you still doubt, let's see what God says about himself again in Ezekiel 33, 11. He says, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. And then God says this. He says, turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die? God desires that we turn away from sin and be redeemed by Christ. God desires that. God wanted that for the Ninevites. That's why he sent Jonah to preach to them in the first place. And he desires that for you too. And so here too we see a parallel between Jonah and Nineveh. Jonah was spared from God's wrath to be used by God so that Nineveh could be spared from God's wrath too. Isn't that cool how God works? Like like God spares Jonah from his wrath, gives him time and space to repent. He does that. Then God uses him so that Nineveh could be spared too. See, church, God wants your redemption. He doesn't want your destruction. The story of Jonah and Nineveh is our story. And as a recap, I just, I, I just want you to remember these things. Your story is never over. It's never over. It's not too late for you. It's not too late for you to be used by God. It's not too late for you to be in his service. Your story is never over. I want you to remember God uses your obedience to bless others. He uses your obedience to bless others. I want you to remember that the power of God's word will change you if you believe it. I also want you to remember God wants your redemption. He does not want your destruction. Some of you have never truly experienced the redemption of God. And some of you need to obey God's command to repent and trust in Jesus, just like the Ninevites needed to obey it. Some of you need to obey God's command to repent, which means turn away from your sin and turn towards God, and then to trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Remember, God wants your redemption. He doesn't take, his word says, he doesn't take any pleasure in the death of those who reject him or or who run away from him. Remember, he loves you more than you love you, and you love you a lot. I know you do. And I've heard it said this way. I've heard it said that the last voice, an unbeliever, so somebody who's gone their whole life, they, they've rejected God, they've turned away from him, they've heard his voice, they've shut their ear, they've, like, like they've, maybe they've even heard a message like this, and, and just continue, you know, continually they've turned it away, turned it away. Um, there's somebody who does not believe in God. I've heard it said that the last voice an unbeliever will ever hear as they step out of this life and into an eternity apart from God The Bible calls that hell. I've heard it said the last voice that they will hear is Jesus' voice saying, it doesn't have to be this way for you. It doesn't have to. Turn to me and be saved. Turn to me, God says, all the ends of the earth and be saved. And today you can experience the redemption of God. It comes through repenting. That means turning away from your sin and believing that Jesus has done everything necessary for you to be saved. You can experience that today. And church, as, as you guys know, um, at, a por- at a portion, a part of our service, what we do is we, we remember. We remember. We take communion. We remember that Jesus Christ, that his body was broken for us and that his blood was shed for us. And, and, we, and the way that we, one of the ways we remember that here in this church is we take communion. Communion, um, you, we have the cracker represents the, 
body of Christ and we have the juice which represents his blood shed for us and his broken body and his spilled blood are what makes salvation possible for us and if you're a believer this is a time for you to come forward you can eat of the bread and drink of the cup and you can remember what Christ has done for you if you're not a follower of Jesus if you're still kind of unsure about this whole Christianity thing that's that, that's fine we ask that instead of you taking communion You simply observe. Observe what people who have already taken that step to follow Jesus are doing to remember what he's done for them. And as these followers of Jesus are coming up and coming forward to receive communion, I would just ask you, if you're you're unsure about where you stand with God, I'd, I'd ask you to consider this day receiving Jesus. You don't need to receive communion. You need to receive Jesus. Receive him as as Christ, as Lord, as Savior. And you can talk to him. You can do that by talking to him in a prayer where you are right now. His grace is available for you today, right where you sit. Um, we're also going to have, um, our, uh, I'll be up here, um, our deacons will be up here. And if you need prayer for any reason, we're up here. We'd love to pray with you. Now, David and the worship team are going to lead us in worship. And we're going to have a time where you can respond. You can pray where you are. You can come forward to prayer. You can take communion. Or you can sing in worship. Um, so when you're ready, church, respond as you're led.